Well, hello and welcome back to another episode of Failure Peace Theater, your movie podcast for films that might deserve a little bit of attention. Maybe they missed the mark when they came out, but now maybe they deserve some time. Uh, I am your amiable co-host, Tim, and joining me, as always, is... Catherine! And this week, we are here to talk about... I, I don't know. I don't know if I can say this is a movie that people might be aware of. I kind of think they aren't. Um, not because it's unknown, but it hasn't been super available. But uh, the film we're here to talk about is The Gate, 1987's Canadian-produced sort of sweet horror film. I don't, I don't really know how to categorize this one. because it, this, this movie could only have been made in the 80s. A family-friendly horror film. That's right. <laughs> this doesn't feel um, like a thing that could work now. <laughs> I, I I think walking the tonal tightrope that this film does, yeah, I, I'm not sure that it would be something that you could do today. Um, you know, we certainly have family films that have horror elements. Those have become fairly common. But this is, for all intents and purposes, a horror film. Just a straight yeah. horror movie. It's a um, horror film it, first, and then it... it puts the family stuff as sort of a secondary, which usually you see it the other way around. It's flipped, right? It's the E.T. model, right? Everybody sort of built that, where we have the family at the center, and then you have this sort of, you know, supernatural something otherworldly event happening that inserts itself into that family dynamic. But this is is very much flipped on its head to where that central, you know, horror dynamic is the, the core of the film. Um, and it's, it's such a strange balance, but... Uh, a sort of adorable little movie. Um, so I, I guess as we get into this, you know, we, we kind of need to run down the horror movies of the eighties that, in, that undoubtedly influenced this or the horror. I really, we could say just horror influences in general. Um, you know, horror in the eighties was big for a bunch of reasons. A lot of it had to do with the rental market. That VHS market for horror was just ravenous. At this time, you know, we'd had things like Evil Dead that had come out and been these instant sort of cult successes and movie, just renting them. Movie theaters you know, were really selective back then about what kind of horror they ran just because you had to be sure as a theater owner that it would put butts in seats. And right. that limited, you know, the kinds of horror movies that made it to the big screen or that made it to those really wide releases. And this would definitely not have been one of those movies. No, um, you know, the, the slasher genre had sort of opened the floodgates to horror in, um, the, in theaters again. Not that, I mean, again, these things never go away. They just sort of wax and wane in terms of their popularity. And in the 80s, there was a hunger for it, right? The, um, you know, we're a couple years past Nightmare on Elm Street, which, of course, was a huge success. The Halloween franchise, which we've talked about before, sort of kicking off the entire slasher series. Friday the 13th was a couple sequels deep at this point. But even beyond that, we had started to see horror aimed at children. Um, you know, we get Monster Squad, right? Which, you know, is is also a film that came out in 1987. So there's there seems to be somebody at these, these independent production houses. Like, hey, how can we make something that has these horror elements, but yet is aimed, you know, at kids? Uh, we've obviously talked about Little Monsters on the show, which again, I think that came out in '88, so a year after this. 
but the same thing, right? There's a little bit of, of darkness to this thing. Um, you know, so as far as the, the cultural inspirations around this, I, I kind of wanted to broach that with you because, um, you know, in the eighties, you know, this was, I, I would have been seven, maybe seven and a half when this film came out. Um, you know, you were, you're a little bit younger than me. So, you know, as someone who came out of the eighties, you know, from my perspective, the eighties were kind of the wild west in terms of film releases, right? Film studios were trying kind of anything and everything to see what sticks. And then things got a lot more regressive in the nineties and a lot more sort of controlled. You still got those weird movies, you know, your, your hackers, you know, or it's just bonkers and off the wall and who approved this kind of thing. But in the The eighties, it seemed like it happened. The nineties saw the blockbuster though. That really interfered with these kind of smaller movies. We had, you know, everybody wanting to make a big movie and make a big splash. Um, so, I mean, I was one when this movie came out. Um, you were, yes. So I, I didn't, you didn't really, see it. yeah, I didn't really have a concept of of films like this. And and honestly, I was born, you know, late enough in the eighties that my perspective on it, it always it's always kind of hindsight. Um, you know, I remember nineteen eighty eight, kind of. I remember nineteen eighty nine, but I don't remember anything before that. Um, however. Movies back then were wild. I mean, we were big into rentals. So a lot of what we rented was stuff, you know, that was still came out years before. Even in the early 90s, we were still renting movies that came out in the mid 80s. Just because mm-hmm. you couldn't possibly see them all. Um, no, no. It's, a, it's the same problem we have now with all of the streaming services. It's like, just there's overwhelming. Just too much. It's overwhelming. Yeah, there's just too much. Um, so, you know, I just thought that's what movies were. Um so it's it's been really interesting to me to see movies kind of be less wild as time goes on because I, you know, it's it's always sort of been from my perspective that this is just how movies are. <laughs> <laughs> this is just movies. This is just the way it is. You shouldn't you make horror um, movies with little children in them? <laughs> yeah, I mean this this movie for me stands alongside a few others that I was just sort of inexplicably drawn to when I was a kid. Um, another one that comes to mind when I think about this movie from, I guess, close to the same era, probably a little bit later would be, uh, house Two: the second <laughs> story, um, which I, I, to this day, I don't think I've seen the original house, but I've probably seen house Two: the second story. I'm going to go ahead and say about 20 times. <laughs> <Same>. Um, <laughs> you know, it's, it's got airy gross. It's got, uh, Royal Dano, John Ratzenberger makes a cameo at the end. You know, just it's it was like it. I think it was one of those situations where it was a script that they already had for something else, and then they just turned it into a house sequel because you know the first one had done okay. But um, yeah, I mean, House Two it had that great cover with the the sort of hand cut off hand ringing the doorbell that the way too low doorbell that was like below the doorknob, which puts a doorbell. Which is really another thing that kind of stands out about this. I, I looked up the the poster for this movie because I'm always curious, especially when we go back to to see how a movie was marketed. And it does kind of remind me of stuff like House, where it has this kind of iconic poster of mm-hmm. uh, the hole, the gateway in the ground, you know, hands reaching up out of it. And it does kind of remind me of those 80s VHS covers that, you know, I used to walk through. We've talked about this before, that we used to walk through the video store and stare at those and be like, what is that movie like? 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I remember the original uh, Evil Dead 2 VHS with just the, mm-hmm. the skull with the eyes. That just, I mean, it, I'm not going to say it terrified me, but it just left this indelible impression. Like, I, I will never forget just the first time I saw the cover of exactly. that film. Um, and, and so this, you know, House 2 is another one, this one as well, because I'm sure we rented this. Like, there's no other way we would have seen it. We definitely wouldn't have gone to the theater and paid money to see this when it was first released. If there was no even chance. a theater that would run this new. Right. Right. Um, we had so, two movie theaters. <laughs> yeah. And uh, they didn't air much. The total of two um, screens. But but uh, I remember us having it on VHS um, and, and, and watching it pretty repeatedly. Um, and it's another one of those sort of films that in my mind, when I think of it, there are several very specific images that come into place. So I guess before we get too much into it, a little, you know, just to wrap up this idea, like eighties horror was this very unique thing and everybody was just trying to see what they could find. Um, the, the critters franchise was running around this time, which kind of had a similar vibe to it. Um, you know, just sort of this weird, like ET, but evil kind of vibe that people were trying to run with. And, uh, you know, so I'd, I'd enjoy it again, Critters 2. I didn't like the first mm-hmm. Critters, but I liked Critters 2 because it was focused on those dumb bounty hunters uh, that could change <laughs> their faces. Um, and they turn and they, they and a lot of these movies, I guess, really post Gremlins, which probably is the most, you know, straightforward line to draw from something like this back. People were trying to get that like scary kids movie thing down. Uh, the thing that Joe Dante apparently can do just like in his sleep without thinking. Um, these people were trying desperately to emulate because the you know Gremlins had been such a massive success and it had spawned this you know media franchise that obviously Joe Dante himself was not cool with. Um, no interest in the sequel for that one, which is why the sequel is so insane. But, you know, people are running after that. They're trying to find that little niche of like little kid horror movies. And like I said, Monster Squad came out this, you know, 1987, which I think is is so cynical. Like Monster Squad is snarky, right? It's it's kind of like not in a bad way. It's kind of like Goonies-esque in that regard. Um, this is not this. This doesn't have that quality at all. This is is very sort of. If I, if anything, I would say overly saccharine and a bit overly sincere, but it, that's because it's really trying to sort of build the family and, and everything. Um, but yeah, so I, I guess let's let's run down sort of what the gate is about because uh, the premise is very simple, and I think that that is one of its strongest elements. Um, it does not complicate itself, right? We've we've talked a lot about movies that know how to stay in their lane. Um, you know, they know what they are, they know what they're going for, they're playing within their budget, they're playing within their means. So the gate fits that. Um, I, I think when we were talking the other day, I said that this movie to me could be retitled Latchkey Kid Nightmare. Yep. <laughs> Which <laughs> is also is, a feature of the 1980s. These kids' a, parents were just gone. <laughs> gone. Disappeared. Where are they? Who knows? Trip. It doesn't matter. And uh and yeah, that's that's exactly what happens here. So um this film is about a, a young boy and and his sister, uh, as well as a, a neighbor a neighbor friend, who encounter after a lightning storm knocks over this massive tree in the backyard of his house, 
um, there is a portal that is opened up underneath and strange things start happening, weird phenomena. Uh, and then eventually they unlock a demonic power of force. Um, some people have even you know, tried to go the Lovecraft route with this, right? Like unlocked a gateway to the old gods kind of thing. Yeah. They even, uh, in, they even in work the in their old gods mention in the movie, which I thought was really cool, but it doesn't go full Lovecraft, which I don't know. I I'm glad it didn't. I liked that. It was a little more original than that. Yes. This movie does a couple of things that not only make it more memorable in my mind, but defy the convention of, of what a movie like this was tr was doing at this time period. Um, it, it sort of turns the other direction in some really specific ways that I think are great. But I mean, really, that premise becomes the children then become this sort of last barrier between, you know, the, the world turning to darkness and, you know, salvation. Um, and, and it's that small cast, the sort of single shooting location, you know, all of it works very well. I mean, this is a formula that we've seen work again and again and again. Um, you know, you look at paranormal activity, single location, small cast, simple premise, and, and it works, right? The moment they start trying to complicate things, it falls apart. And so, and to be honest, this film does also have a sequel, Gate 2, um, which is not that great. Because they try to complicate this very, very simple premise. Um, but in any case, that does not take away from this film. So it, the the cast is is very small, but it's very good. And headlining the show, and, and perhaps I, I know you mentioned when you realized who it was. Um, this this is the film debut of one Mr. Stephen Dorff. Now. With two Fs. Now I looked up the movie. And I saw Stephen Dorff. Mm -hmm. And he didn't look up anything else. I saw that it was 1987. And I'm like, oh, wow. So he was young. Mm -hmm. um, boy, is he ever. I yes. I know that he did some childhood TV stuff. I had, I did know that. Um, but yeah, I didn't yeah. really watch any of the shows that he was on, <laughs> if I'm being honest. That was just before my time. Um, no. So this. I mean, he, he like had a guest starring role in like yeah, the new lead like the Beaver. Like, bit come on. Parts. So I wouldn't yeah. have noticed that. So I actually didn't know that he was going to be like 13 years old. He is, he is literally 13 years old in this movie. Mm -hmm. And he is adorable. What an adorable child he was. And, and so talented. Carries, <laughs> and he carries this movie on his tiny jacketed back. Like. It's it's remarkable how much he is given to do in this movie. Like it's, I mean, even in something like E.T., where Henry Thomas is obvious, like Spielberg cast Henry Thomas because he knew that Henry Thomas and E.T. were basically going to be, you know, ninety five percent of this movie. But Spielberg still had Peter Coyote in his pocket. He still had D. Wallace. Right. He's he's got adults in there that if you, if the kid stuff didn't work, he could, you know, kind of sidestep into. Oh, well, we'll and, just maybe have a and more experienced more actors on set tend to tease out a better performance from a child actor. Right. You know, they have something to kind of live up to. But this movie is just kids. It's just the kids like the parents are an afterthought. They're in one breakfast scene wherein they decide that they're going to leave and then they're gone um and there are no other adults 
well, unless you count the zombified construction <laughs> breaks out of the walls at a certain point. I guess he would count as an adult. Not necessarily helpful, but um, yeah, it, this is a movie where Stephen Dorff, uh, even at the young age of 13, is is really doing some good work. Is it Henry Thomas and E.T. level work? No, um, but he's he's believable as Glenn, his character's name. Um, and and he is is definitely sort of the emotional core of the movie. He's it's the one that's got a far sort of cry from his performance in Blade. Yes, uh, this is our our Deacon Frost from the uh, the original Blade <laughs> film. Uh, who uh, I, I will give it this right in a especially in that era, Marvel had nothing but forgettable, terrible villains, right? Like all of the villains, really throughout the. You know, until we get to Thanos in the Marvel movies, all of the villains suck. They're all terrible. Maybe Red Skull's okay. Um, but I will always remember Deacon Frost from Blade. He's a good villain in that movie. He's a great foil for that character who comes to a delightful end. So, you know, say what you want. Stephen Dorff was, <laughs> it's, it's pretty close, man. Um, you know, so his, his star has, has dwindled, I suppose you could say. He's still very much a working actor. He's very much doing many things. Um, he's had a couple of TV series. I will say this. He was one of the, the co-leads for the last season of True Detective, the third season mm -hmm. that came out. I don't know if there's going to be more, but he was in that third season. And and he probably was the best thing about that season. Or at least he was one of the better things about it. Um, there's this uh, a scene at the end where, you know, things have kind of turned bad for them and, you know, they're just things are not going well for the, the guys in their investigation. And he just gets really pissed off and he just wants to get in a fight. So he goes to this redneck bar and just starts insulting people at random, just hoping that one of them will take a swing because he's fully aware that he's going to beat the ever living shit out of whoever takes him on. He just needs them to throw the first punch so he doesn't <laughs> go to jail. And the stuff that he says to these people, like the, I, I don't, I'm sure it was scripted, but his delivery is delightful. And it's, it's easily the most memorable scene for me out of that season of true detective. Um, so, I mean, he's, he's very skilled and I think you can see the seeds of that skill just right here in this, this teeny tiny little horror movie. Um, this was a Canadian production, which you will, if you do watch this, you will note they, they very much try to frame it as, you know, an American suburban household, but it's not quite there. Um, you know, it's, there's just, everything's kind of nondescript, right? Like a kid like this, he'd probably be wearing like a Chicago Cubs jacket or something, but instead it's just this red jacket. And he's got like little NASA patches all over it, which does matter to the story, but, but still, um, so he's he's really good. I, I I'm I'm sure we'll talk more about the specifics of his performance as we delve in. But so there's Gene. Then there is his. I don't know if he's his best friend. It's kind of framed that he's kind of like a neighborhood kid that he's friendly with, um, and they get along really well. But uh, that of course would be Terry. Team Terry and forever. <laughs> Terry is great, played by a, a young actor who really unfortunately has not done much else. Uh, named Lewis Tripp. Uh, Terry is 
and again, this is one of those sidestep things that this movie does that a lot of movies in the 80s would not have attempted. Terry is is also a latchkey kid, but for different reasons, right? Gene's parents are obviously both working. They're busy. Um, Terry has experienced a loss. His mother has died. And now he is being single parented by his father and his father is not very good at that. Um, and as a result, Terry seemingly has gotten very much into uh, heavy metal. Yeah. Right. Because this is the 1980s, right? This is kind the of rise of, of heavy metal. Riffing off satanic panic a little bit because he's got all of the, yes. you know, devil music, which I really liked because it it was nice that he really likes heavy metal, but I didn't get the the feeling that this was characterization through quirk, which we've talked about being terrible so many times. He really mm-hmm. is just a regular kid, and he's written as a very average kid and and just sort of likable. Um, I, I was sort of concerned when I saw you know the way they had him dressed with the, the Nelson Muntz looking vest. I was afraid they would take right. that the, too far. The- <laughs> the denim vest with the <laughs> safety pins and the studs and the shoulders. Like, it's it's the whole thing. But he really does just wear the clothes. And he's still, you know, very much the, the innocent kid on top of it. I, I just, I, I really like that. I thought this was a great sidekick character. Because a lot of movies in the 80s overdid the sidekick. Where it just becomes this sort of collection of tropes rather than a character that you can really root for. Right. No, Terry feels very real. I mean, I guess we should really say he's he's actually a metal nerd. Yeah. Right? Like he's he's got the big thick Coke bottle glasses, he's got the bad, you know, great clips haircut. Um, but he you could tell he's he's a kid that has turned to metal for the way it makes him feel and for the ideas that are being put forward. It's 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 a sort of careful choice instead of again being that sort of, well, he's gonna be the kid that listens to metal. It ties directly into the plot. There is a, a, a you know significant plot point that if Terry was not familiar with metal, they would be in more trouble. So that is also cool because again, this is you know we briefly referenced Satanic Panic, but there was a a, a very significant thing going on at this time, uh, and I remember it too. I you know I had grandparents in the eighties and. I was told repeatedly that Kiss stood for knights and Satan's service and Def Leppard stood yeah, there for was a, something. You there was know, a craze like, with backmasking that you know your your records would have mm-hmm. evil shit in them. Um, right. And if you just played them backwards, you could hear it, <laughs> which this movie directly references. <laughs> we destroyed and, our and parents' inverts. turntables trying to do That's that. That's right, man. We tore up those needles. Um, you know, it, it was one of those... One of those times where there were a lot of people who just didn't get a thing that was going on culturally. And so these these rumors, and some of it may have been based in truth. Maybe there was an album that experimented with backmasking. I mean, people said that shit about the Beatles, too. Um, yeah, I mean, know, it is a it, real thing. It just, it, to to date, I have never been able to summon any demons with it. So No. It and I'm so work. disappointed. That's like, I'm so sad. Um, so, I mean, again, this, this movie's premise is very straightforward. It is really just these kids battling against the forces of evil that have arisen out of his backyard, summoned by some, you know, ancient God, ancient force. And, and because they have these, you know, this little bit of knowledge and a little bit of gumption, they're able to sort of, you know, cap it off. 
the third character, though, we can't forget is uh, Jean's older sister, Al, um, who isn't Alexandra, but she doesn't want to go by that anymore because she's mature now or something. Um, or no, it's the opposite, right? He calls her Al and she wants to be called Alexandra because, you know, she's she's a grown up now. And it this is sort of the core relationship of the film that they they do a pretty good job of building up, if I'm being honest. Um, there's a lot of, you know, pans through rooms where we see family pictures and it's obvious that Alexandra was sort of a tomboy, right? It's very athletic, um, really into rockets, which so is Jean. That becomes a, a sort of important thing later, but they really are into model rocket building and shooting. And this is just an aside, but I kind of believe that hobby, um, the street view that you get of this neighborhood that they live in, these are some pretty mm-hmm. well-to-do families with very nice, yes. very big houses. So they would be able these to have like, yeah. a rocket ship hobby. <laughs> yeah, the parents drive an Audi. So like, <laughs> you know, they're they're doing okay. Um, yeah, you, you get the feeling that this is very much a, a fairly well-to-do family. Now, I, I imagine some of that was just they knew they were going to need a big house because uh, this was a lot shot on location. Uh, apparently they had to rebuild the back of the house because the backyard didn't meet the parameters they needed for a lot of the scenes. Um, so they had to rebuild the back entrance and everything, but they really did shoot this, a, a good chunk of this inside an actual home. Um, so they needed something big, I'm sure. But yeah, this is, this is a family that is doing okay. This, uh, you know, Terry is obviously not, his family's not doing great, but that's just because of the, the death in the family that he's experienced. Um, so yeah, it's, it's a real interesting setup. Uh, the sister relationship is, is strained at the beginning of the film. And then of course, through these experiences, they're forced to kind of come back together as a unit. And so that's kind of one of the emotional arcs of the film, which works pretty well. Uh, and again, in the absence of any parents being there, it's kind of the only one (laughs) you can do. Um, but it's it's a, a a nice core cast. It's it's very cool and and you know sort of tight, uh, which I think benefits a film like this. Now the other thing that this film is known for, apart from you know the young dwarf and he uh, is sort of cool premise, this film is known surprisingly for some of its special effects. Um, this has some really memorable special effects sequences in it uh, especially in the third act when you know literally all all hell breaks loose and uh, I wanted to talk about a couple of them one of the scenes that stuck out in my mind there's a uh, there's a little sort of foreshadowing of it happening at the very beginning there's a movie that they're watching on TV that sort of leads into this but uh, later in the film uh, Gene actually you know Something happens to him and he gets an, an eye in his hand. That was um, genuinely like really scary. It's it was a fascinating effect. And I remember as a kid, you know, nine, you know, eight or nine when I first saw this, um, being really affected by it because it looked very real. Um and and so like that scene, uh, there's a lot of really good miniature enforced perspective work. Um, there's these little, like, eventually there's these little, like, hel- I don't know what to call them, helper demons or something that are just trying, they just basically run around trying to cause havoc, right? It's sort of the gremlins effect, right? We're not really a threat because we're so tiny, but we're just kind of like fucking shit up, right? We're Hendrix. just going to knock over all these things. And 
yeah, it's 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 kind of adorable. And, and there's a lot of forced perspective work with those shots so that you can have the characters in frame with, you know, the actors inside the suits. And and I just wanted to point out here that this this tiny Canadian movie made for, you know, a couple million dollars in the fall of 1986 or or whatever. This is actually one of the early early special effects some of the early special effects were for a guy named Randall William Cook. And so I, his name is featured heavily in the opening credits as a special effects supervisor in a film like this should be. But I was like, man, I know that name. And so I, I looked him up and it became immediately obvious because you, like me, have spent a tremendous amount of time watching the appendices of Peter Jackson's Lord of the Rings and, uh, you know, where they do their big special effects breaks downs and how did we do this and what did we do here? And there was this guy. Kind of seemed a little bit like a jackass, if I'm being honest. He always <laughs> kind of had like an attitude about what he did. Like, oh, it was just, you know, we just did this thing. But his name is Randall William Cook. And so the guy who who was the visual effects supervisor for all of these shots, which are surprisingly good given their budget, the scale, the project itself. He wound up, you know, 10 years later going to work in New Zealand on Lord of the Rings. Um, and, and he has three Oscars for Lord of the Rings because he worked as an animation supervisor and a bunch of other stuff there. Um, so, I mean, it was one of those things that the name just uh, Randall William. I know that name. And it, it just kind of fell in line here. And my other sort of sub hypothesis out of that revelation is that. I think Peter Jackson is a fan of this movie. I really do. Because this has a 80s Peter Jackson feel. Yeah. It's not as sloppy. It's there's not as much, you know, gore being thrown around. This but is, it feels a bit like Dead Alive. This is more like right? if, or Brain Dead. This is more like if Frighteners era Peter Jackson tried to remake Brain Dead. You know, that you'd totally. get something that's more restrained, you'd get something that's a little a little well, like you said, not as sloppy, a little neater, a little easier to approach. But yeah, I could definitely see that. You know, and it would not surprise me that as Peter Jackson was assembling his team, because Randall William Cook, as far as I know, I'm, I'm pretty sure he's American. So, I mean, he was not, he would not have been one of Peter Jackson's like New Zealand guys. So I can totally see Peter Jackson assembling his team and being like, Oh, remember that guy from the gate? <laughs> Randall Williams. Let's call that guy. I mean, and and the, again, I mean, he went to UCLA film school and and came out of it with a film degree, right? So I mean, like he's he's knows what he's doing. But it was just remarkable to me to have that be like, oh, that guy. Yeah. And and I, I really and for do something I think, so specific you know, that is also really well known in the Lord of the Rings films. Like their use of force perspective is kind of iconic in in uh, in a lot of ways so you know it's it's it doesn't feel like a coincidence that those movies have this in common yeah i mean and if you look at what he was doing in the 90s prior to the lord of the rings i mean it's it's a lot of like direct video horror stuff um you know it's it's but it's a lot of miniature work it's a lot of perspective work it's it's things that Peter Jackson knew he was going to need experts in to pull off at the scale that he was going to do. 
And I, I think he really did. I mean, I, I don't know this. I'm, I'm sure people have probably interviewed this guy and talked about it if that's the case. But um, it was just a really cool thing because, again, this movie has some shots in it that are fantastic. Yeah. Given what this is like that, you know, for for horror at this time to, to even attempt. Right. Nobody was even trying to do this kind of stuff in horror movies at this point. Um, and uh, it, it's it's very old school and, and really really effective um so i did just want to call that out because it's an interesting little thing that ties to you know one of the greatest film series of all time and it's you know one little building block of that greatest film series of all time is this guy who made the gate right? yeah. <laughs> you know, it's, it's just kind of cool i love how hollywood works right it's just nice it's like poetry um, rhymes it is it rhymes <laughs> it just keeps coming back so um this film has a really great heart to it. Um, I've heard it said that this is a great sort of gateway horror film. If you are trying to introduce a young person, you know, or, or maybe even a child to horror, if you feel like your child is, is ready for that kind of film going experience, um, that this is a good one to throw at them because it does have this really, you know, there is a tone of threat there. There is a, a tone of, uh, danger and imminent danger, but at the same time, there is this sort of sincerity to it that kind of helps you hold on to the thread that everything's going to be okay. And that's an important thread for a lot of young people as they're watching horror, right? You can't, in my opinion, you don't want to let a kid go to despair, right? Like right. that, you know, you you don't want to let them fall into the, oh, all is lost. That if you if you watch a movie that has those elements to it, and you watch that with a young kid, I don't think you're going to get them back out of it, even if the film resolves well, right? Um, and so this one doesn't really do that. And, and I kind of like that about it a lot. Um, as far as availability, uh, as of right now, and this is uh, early December of 2021, um, it is streaming free on YouTube. Uh, it has been rolled into the Vestron video sub-brand of Lionsgate Films. Uh, of which there have been a few releases. I think the, the recent Little Monsters release was under that uh, label. They've also released another film that was actually on my early list to talk about for this, uh, The Wraith. Oh, yeah. I don't know if you remember that one. The early Charlie Sheen, Lara Flynn Boyle I joint. Do. I do. Yeah, they had that uh, Oldsmobile test car that uh, he drove that apparently when he ran into things, they just exploded, you know, that <laughs> kind of stuff. Um, yeah. The Wraith is, is another sort of one I watched probably way too much as a kid. I liked that movie a lot. Um, but uh, yeah, so the Vestron video and, and all of those Vestron videos, or at least a good chunk of them are, are streaming for free on YouTube. So uh, you can check it out there. Uh, if you've got YouTube premium, then it's ad free. You can just watch it all the way through. If not, you'll have to watch a couple ads, but it may still be worth it. Uh, other than that, I am not sure where to get this right now. Uh, I'm sure you can find it on Amazon. There's probably there are some, copies of it running around. There stuff. are some jankety streaming sites that also have this movie, if you know how to find those. Hey, there you go. Yeah. Jankety. <laughs> um, I guess the only other piece I wanted to talk about in terms of its production was the writer. Um, so this was written by Michael Nankin, um, who at the time had not really done much. This was not his first project, but he had, you know, not really done a ton. Um, 
he he did also write and this was the same year i think and do you, i don't know if you remember this one or not but ruskies remember that one no so i i i also enjoyed ruskies uh ruskies was about a group of of kids um young teenagers probably about the same age as the characters in this who actually rescue a stranded Russian submarine pilot or soldier. Like a dude gets, he gets somehow gets kicked out of his submarine <laughs> and they find him and they kind of nurse him back to health. And it's like this, I, I, I vaguely remembered as a movie. It was like, Hey, not all Russians are bad. You know, like that's <laughs> basically it. Um, well, that's in like, direct contrast with what movies taught us back then. And I, I think the main thing about it that that has stayed in my mind is that it actually stars who was crediting himself at the time as Leaf Phoenix. Oh. But it actually is a very young Joaquin Phoenix uh, in, in one of his extremely early starring roles. And it's it's. The scene I remember from the movie is that when they find this Russian guy, his shoulder has been dislocated. And so they take him to somebody and the person just like hands him a dictionary, this huge dictionary. And the pressure from the dictionary hanging on the arm like pops it back in the socket. <laughs> I remember that very specifically. So um, it, another very weird movie, um, but he he didn't write that whole thing. I think he was basically credited with like the original one that had been rewritten several times, but he also wrote that. But really the more interesting thing is that he has gone very hard into that sort of Vancouver Canadian television development scene. Um, he worked on uh, the Battlestar Galactica reboot, a bunch, bunch of episodes of that. Um, He's worked on the that Terminator Sarah Chronic the Sarah Connor Chronicles show, which was was not bad. It's okay. Dresden Files. So I mean, he's just kind of he's while he you know doesn't write a ton anymore, he's stayed within that sort of Canadian uh, you know film and television scene and done done pretty well for himself. So he he also is a name that if you are a big sort of like sci fi fan, you've probably run into it from time to time. So this movie has some bona fides, like some surprising bona fides. Um, that's, you know, maybe it, it's, it's like another one of those films where, you know, the film itself wasn't anything that was huge, but it got these people, their experience and their credits enough to go off and do cool, cool things elsewhere. Um, I guess it's worth noting that this was not directed by any of the guys we've talked about. That was, uh, uh and I'm going to butcher this name, uh, Tibor Takakis, I believe. Uh, again, I'm sure that's the wrong pronunciation. He's a Hungarian born director. Um, and this movie is is directed capably, right? I'm not going to say it's brilliant. Uh, it's it's shot in in the ways that you would expect it to be. Its brilliance is how it incorporates the special effects. But I think there's still some good performances. There's some really good sequences and shots in it. And so I, I don't want to like you know get away from saying that you know he didn't have a lot to do with that too. Um, but he has done mostly you know like straight to TV movies. He's done quite a few sci-fi channel originals, you know, that kind of thing. He's, he's never really broken out of, um, he's never really broken out of this mold. Whereas some of the people who were associated with this film did. 
So, I mean, it's, it's kind of an interesting career that he's had, but in any way, I think, you know, he's, he's done some cool things. He would actually reunite with, um, Randall William Cook right before Cook started on, um, Lord of the Rings for a film called Redline, which I, I do remember seeing, uh, way back in the mid nineties. Uh, it's a, a Rucker Hauer movie. Oh, I love Rucker Hauer. Um, which also had Mark Dacascos in it, which oh. is why I picked it up. Yeah, it's it's Rucker Hauer and Mark Dacascos. I know, right? <laughs> um, and it's it's a it's a fairly straight straightforward uh, sort of sci fi action of the time, sort of in the cyborg mold. Um, that if you remember that Jean Claude oh, Van Damme yeah. classic. Um, it's like a bionic guy. He well, he like gets blown up in an explosion or something, and then he gets turned into a bionic man. Or, I I have vague recollections, but Randall William Cook was also the special effects supervisor on that. So, um, and, and that was his job literally right before he left to go do Lord of the Rings by all accounts. So, so a little bit of, of, you know, full circle stuff happening there, but uh, all right. So anyway, this film's got some bona fides. It's a cool little story. Uh, I guess we'll go ahead and break down the movie, talk a little bit about it as we go through. Um, but before we get into that, would you recommend somebody go watch this movie for free? Absolutely. Um, <laughs> Adblock is everywhere. And mm. if you don't want to watch it with YouTube ads, you know, use your Adblock. Um, block those ads. But seriously, you you could you could do a lot of things with a with a Saturday night. And this is not the worst thing you can this this might even be one of the better things you could do with your weekend um right have a watch i love the, i love anything with good child actors like i just i think it's amazing when you can get like a stranger things it. you know like stranger no <laughs> before stranger things could be stranger things we had to have this, glenn and terry right. <laughs> they laid the groundwork steven dorf <laughs> laid the train tracks with his own tiny adorable and quite frankly, if you like Blade, like if if you like him as Deacon Frost, if you enjoyed that performance, please go watch this movie because it you'll be blown away. He's so little. I just can't believe how tiny he is. <laughs> this is Deacon Frost. Like, holy shit. That's the guy who's going to be in Blade. God, he doesn't even have much hair. Um <laughs> Yeah, it's 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 a remarkable thing. Uh, agreed. Uh, this this is definitely worth it. The other thing worth mentioning, um, you know, we talk often about the the length and breadth of modern American film, and uh, this movie is just is, it oh. may be exactly eighty minutes long. Yep, it's like blissfully it is. Short. It is so short. Not a like, moment out of place. Not a moment that runs too long. It's just. Everything is brisk, and I love it. It's it's pretty good, man. You forget in the eighties. I mean, you could watch, you could watch like five or six movies a day. Yeah, These movies were like ninety minutes long, and but now it's like I get in t- t- what two before it's bedtime because they're four hours long. And you got to take bathroom um, breaks at a regular oh every forty minutes of this eight-hour movie. I have to go stretch my legs. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I, I think at I think at this time in the eighties, I think feature length was like seventy six minutes. I think that was like the minimum. Yeah, home video was released. like eighty five minutes, eighty six minutes, something like that. And and this is right at that. 
um, you know, very specifically designed. Um, I doubt there was much left on the cutting room floor of this movie. But uh, that's another thing worth noting. You're, this is not a massive investment of your time. Uh, they just announced that the new Spider-Man film is going to be two hours and 30 minutes long. Which, I mean, I'm excited for Spider-Man. Please understand. It's going to be fun. But my lord, that is long for a Spider-Man film. Um, it's, but yeah, yeah. It, you know, this doesn't have that problem. No, no. And I, I really do hope that movies return to something similar to this. You know, 90 minutes. That's all I'm asking. Just keep your it movie to, to 90 minutes. And and really, the writing in this movie is is a good example of how bloated a story can become if you don't keep it trimmed back. Like, this movie has barely anything in it. It's just the plot. And the plot never stops moving, not, not for one second Every scene has some sort of, you know, expository detail, something that's pushing the plot forward. And it's just, it's so nice to watch. Yeah, you kind of forget that film at one point was really attempting to balance that sort of artistic and commercial, um, which, I mean, they always are, they always will, but it, it really was a proposition of we have this much budget, we have this much time. This is what we've got. So what can you do with it? It's it's that it's the art of rest, restriction making you better, right? I by having less to work with, I have to be better with what I have. And this movie is a good example of that. Um, with a bigger budget, more time, more special effects, I don't think it would be as charming. I think it would lose a lot. Um, but this is one of those movies. This is the kind of movie that people should be remaking. This is what you want to remake. Don't remake. I mean, well, I'm not going to say that, but I was going to say West Side Story. It's like, why remake West Side Story? West Side Story is perfect, right? Spielberg is just putting out a new version of it. And apparently it's wonderful. I'm definitely going to take my wife to see it because she loves West Side Story and I know she's excited about it. But why, right? Why remake something that's already brilliant from top to bottom? Right. What's the point other than you just to flex on how you would do it? And I'm fine with that. Spielberg certainly is at a point in his career where he's welcome to do that. And if he can get the people to put up the money for it, why not? But this is what remakes are made for to take this little tiny movie that could and turn it into something, again, not overblown. Right. I don't want to see a hundred and fifty million dollar gate movie. That's ridiculous. But that's almost exactly what we're well, unfortunately, this seems to me like this would be a good like Blumhouse 10 million and out yeah. kind of film, right? Um, which would be remarkably similar to its original production, to be honest. But this would be perfect for that, right? Update it a little bit, bring a lot of it, you know, into the modern era in terms of its special effects, but leave the story and sort of the basic thrust of it alone. But I, I, I've I've wondered several times over the years if this would be one. This would be a good candidate for that. But who knows? Um, all right. So um, you recommend free. I'm definitely recommending free. I mean, it's on YouTube. Go watch it. Why not? Um, if you have a YouTube app on your television via Roku or Android, then by all means, fire it up and enjoy because you'll probably be pretty satisfied with it. 
Um, but we're going to get into spoilers. So if you would like to go watch the film, you can stop this podcast now and come back when you're finished. And uh, we're going to break it down. So the the opening of this film is is pretty straightforward. Uh, as I mentioned, it's a latchkey kid nightmare. Uh, after the very start credits sequence, literally just red text on a black background, ominous music in the background, um, we get the standard 1980s intro, which is kid on bike. Um, but we do have a bit of a twist here. It's, it seems It seems like a standard kid on bike opening at first, which I like. Um, it's very rosy. The, the, it's sort of the sort of golden hour, or at least as close as they could get to golden hour to film it. But the streets are empty. There's no one around. And it's just our, our, you know, little main character, our little Steven Dorf, uh, riding his very nice BMX bike. Holy shnikes. That's a good one. And, uh, and coming home to find that his entire house is, is empty. Right. And not just empty, but like the dishes are on the table. Um, you know, everything is, is sort of out of joint just a little bit. Um, the door sort of flings open. He goes out in the backyard. He has a kick-ass tree house made out of pallet wood. And the, then there's a storm and the tree gets knocked over, uh, which ostensibly starts the film, but it's framed as a dream, right? So I, I wanted to talk about this just a little bit. Um, well, what are your thoughts on this opening? How, how effective do you think it is? I kind of like it because, uh, I wasn't, you could tell that it was supposed to be a dream pretty quickly, but I guess I don't see a lot of movies just go from credits to dream sequence without over-laboring that it's a dream. And this movie really didn't. Right. In fact, it it almost felt like that was the hook. Like, ah, we got you watching now. Um, but it was really effective because I found myself curious about why the movie would have started with a dream sequence. Because um, I, I just don't see that. I don't see that happen very often. But I thought, I thought that was interesting. And it kind of reminds me of, you know, those... Dreams where I, I felt like it was a dream that he had after the treehouse fell down because, you know, that's that's something that happens in childhood. You experience something and then it sort of gets recontextualized in your dreams. Um, and I kind of felt like that's what it was trying to do. But I like mm-hmm. that it, it didn't do this big, long flashback of the actual storm and the destruction of the treehouse and didn't take like a 20 minute long intro sequence to explain that his treehouse fell down. <laughs> Yeah, no, it's it's very swift. Um I'm a little I'm a little intrigued by some of the things that were shown during the dream. Um obviously the treehouse is the centerpiece. He goes out, he climbs the treehouse in the midst of the storm. The treehouse gets struck by lightning and then, you know, falls over and presumably he's injured or something has gone wrong and then he wakes up and and of course he's fine. But we're we're shown a couple of key things that become important later, right? Where um, the the television, as he's walking through the house, I think he's in the basement or you know, sort of like that basement family room that was really popular with homes at that time. And and there's a person who tears their eyes out and holds mm-hmm. them in the palm of the hand. Mm-hmm. And 
all of the horror elements in this film, right? All of the really striking horror stuff, save for like the old gods, demons, things. We have a visual key or a story key for why that's there, right? But in his bedroom, we see that he's a Godzilla fan. Mm -hmm. He loves big lizards, Mm -hmm. right? We see his rocket uh, being built on the desk, which is gone when he wakes up. It's only in the dream. Basically, we get foreshadow. It's very this is either very like a Wizard of Oz, right? This this is very sort of careful foreshadowing, or what we're really being told here is that none of these things are happening. Mm-hmm. Because um, one of the other sort of horror set pieces later, as I mentioned earlier, is a, a zombie that breaks out of the wall. Well, that comes from a story that Terry told Glenn that a construction worker died when his house was being built and they just sealed him up in the walls. Mm-hmm. Right. So like all of these these things that eventually terrify them have grounding in what we're shown at the beginning of the film and whether or not it's again careful foreshadowing where they're just kind of setting these things up or if they're setting up the idea that this is one of those it's all a dream kind of scenarios i really don't know and i kind of like that it sort of Um, reminded me of the tree nightmare that he has in poltergeist yes yeah (laughs) there's some serious poltergeist vibes in this movie from time to time not right, overwhelming but no you could do a lot worse um so the tree he wakes up again we don't know exactly what the dream was or you know how much of the dream was real but i think we're meant to sort of see that glenn feels alone i think that's really the biggest you know sort of emotional takeaway from from the dream is that glenn spends a lot of time by himself and he doesn't really feel like his family is there for him which you know, it's shown to be basically true in the very near future. Um, But again, this movie wastes zero time. It just keeps on trucking so that we get some shots of the tree being removed and then there's a hole in the ground. But Glenn is curious about the hole because he finds a geode, uh, which again, as a kid in the 80s, geodes were very cool. Um, Geodes are Um, still cool. cool. (laughs) I would like a geode right now, especially a big one like what they find. They find some big ass geodes in these holes. Um, of course, the the film sort of paints them as they're almost like eggs. Right? Mm-hmm. They're like some sort of, you know, it's, you can tell like maybe the author at some point had gone to a museum and seen a geode is like, that oh, just looks like a fucking egg. And what would come out of that egg? And then, you know, here we go. But so he finds a geode. Um, he brings Terry over and and Terry is is you know, very interested in a geode of his own. So they dig the hole back up when they dig it up, Terry steps through it. And now the hole is very big. Um, and, and they find another you know, geode. Um, but then we're quickly introduced to Al, the sister, and she is doing what any sister who is going through a state of transition in a film is going to do. She's throwing away all of her trophies, <laughs> all of the things that used to matter to her when she was like uh, a kid gonna throw all those in the garbage but um i the uh most recent transformers film well one of them uh the bumblebee movie this exact scene right the character is like taking all of her diving trophies and just tossing them in the garbage so that it prompts the family to say not your diving trophies right it's exactly that 
Um, but here we see that she's getting rid. The thing that affects Glenn the most is rockets. Because uh, in the dream, we saw that um, he's building the rocket, obviously. But at the same time, there is also a picture of the two of them having won, I guess, some kind of award for rocket building. Right? There's, they had actually, you know. There's a slight layer of complexity to the sister's character that, you know, because the movie is is moving at such a clip, it doesn't take the time to, again, labor this point. But the way that she dresses in the beginning and then the way that she dresses in front of her friends, the fact that she's giving up on her rockets, she's trying to shed her geekiness. Because mm-hmm. um, you really get an impression that not only is she really close to her little brother, but she also has a lot of nerdy hobbies. And mm-hmm. she's trying to hide that in order to hang out with what she perceives as cooler people, which I kind of like. I kind of <laughs> like that character arc. I always like that. Um, yes, it's not a bad one. And in the 80s, it's it's a fairly typical trope of these kinds of films to establish, you know, a, a, a girl in a, in a state of transition. Right? Yeah. Like she's she's changing. And, and this is a fairly easy framework wherein she can both move away from her brother, but then, you know, come back to him in that sort of satisfying emotional arc, which is definitely what this film is setting up. So, you know, Terry gets his, uh, you know, puking when she talks about boys or something. And, uh, and the film again, just rapidly moves on and some, some flies, some winged creatures fly out of the hole. Uh, and immediately start getting caught in the bug zapper, which this film has an interesting relationship with bug zappers as well. <laughs> um, so uh, Terry catches a few of them in an effort to determine how long they can survive without oxygen. <laughs> and then we find out that uh, they can survive forever because, you know, demons and stuff. Uh, but, you know, it, it's a lot of movies now in now that we're in this nostalgia you know sort of realm we see lots and lots of movies attempting to recreate these sort of like 80s bedrooms 80s kitchens and and there's certainly a lot of different you know ways you can go with that and and shows like stranger things they've they've done very well at sort of hitting all those nostalgia berries um you know even down to like the glassware right cuz i remember watching one episode of stranger things and they had this like lemonade pitcher mm-hmm. they had and yep, it was with the slices it on the, it i flipped exact, the fuck out the exact one <laughs> like that's that the I one had. that mom's got that's i mean we still have it yeah <laughs> i mean so it's like that kind of stuff has its moments where i'm like oh my god but this film is so i guess i'll reference et because in E.T., it's like the hyper-realized 80s bedroom, right? Like, that kid has everything, right? He's got all the Star Wars toys. And and this is a well-to-do family, so I'm, I don't want to make it seem like this kid's, like, impoverished or anything. But this, his, like, Glenn's bedroom, which is where we spend most of the time in the house for the first chunk of it, feels like an actual kid's bedroom. Mm-hmm. It's kind of messy. The furniture's just kind of, like, haphazardly not placed decorated. wherever you would set it down. Exactly. It does not feel movie set decorated. And that is so refreshing, mm-hmm. you know, because it's not, it was not assembled with like sight lines in mind or distances in mind. Like all of it is set up 
as a, as like an actual kid's bedroom would be set up. And I and imagine it was just budgetary, right? And it was just, well, this is just a kid's bedroom, so freaking put the nightstand over there. Who cares? But like stuff's knocked over. There's there's piles of stuff in places. It's it's a kid's bedroom. And that is is something that I think shows like Stranger Things in their efforts to look 80s because they have to curate it so carefully and cautiously to get it there. It loses that quality. They want everybody to engage in the, hey, look, I had that. And in order to reach right. you know, the maximum number of people, you have to fill the frame with so much stuff and so many references that people are overwhelmed. Um, yes. Whereas this is just, I don't know, this is more or less what our bedrooms look like. <laughs> <laughs> it feels like it. Definitely. Um, so the setup then is that the parents need to go away on a trip. We don't know exactly what kind of trip. They have a brief conversation about it over uh, dinner one night. Al insists that she be allowed to to babysit because she's almost 16, you know, so they don't need anything. You know, the parents are not like. They're not cool with it. Yeah, I guess they're not you know, bad parents like other 80s parents, but they're not Christ. great parents either. <laughs> no, they they certainly feel like everything's going to be fine and we're just going to like take off. Uh, I, I do like the smash cut for the mom being like, no parties and then immediately <laughs> smashes to a party. Um, and and again, as part of this film, this looks like the lamest party that has ever been held. And as a result, it feels very real Yeah, because all parties like this are actually very lame I've and generally never, boring. I've never really believed the, the movie trope of the, the wild party where everybody wrecks the house. When you get a bunch of very young teenagers who are like high school freshmen and, and sophomores, they're going to be terrified that anyone will find out they had a party. So they're not going to break anything. They're not going to make a mess. Um, right. And, and Al, I love that the vast majority of how we see her in this film, that's exactly what she's doing. She's like running around with a rag and she's just picking up empty glasses yeah. and trying to keep the dog out of the chips. And, you know, all of all of these things that are, are definitely that teenager who's like, oh, God, I'm going to be in so much trouble if these people make a mess. Yeah. And it becomes this frustrating experience for her and, until she makes eye contact with a boy. Oh boy. Yeah. Um, so I guess it's worth mentioning because they hang around for a surprising amount in this film. I, I kind of remembered them exiting the movie earlier than they actually did. Um, the sister has two friends who are, who both have the last name Lee. Uh, it's like Linda Lee and Rhonda Lee or something. Um, and, and, and they're the ones who are kind of pushing her into this, this new social strata right they're like oh check out this boy or let's have a party they do they kind of are constantly pestering her to to be more they're the the stereotypical girls and she is very much trying to be that um like right. when they show up to the party and she's got the crimped hair and the earrings it's oh, just so crimped oh my god <laughs> it's terrible for your hair it's it is just don't do it um so they're having the party. It's it's going okay, but you know the boys, of course, are trapped upstairs because they can't be seen uh, by the the two cool teenagers. And and what happens? But they open the geode, um, they, the the second geode that Terry found, and this one is very special. It's sparkly and 
It's uh, sort of black on the inside. I love Terry. So, so this is where Terry and Glenn's relationship really starts to become more obvious, right? They're, they're obviously friends, but they, they, they get along. And I love that Terry, when Glenn's like, was it supposed to do that? Like, and he's like, maybe it's got some, some compressed air. <laughs> it's, just, it's just so great. Cause it's the kind of bullshit that like a 12 year old, 13 year old kid who's been confronted with something they have no explanation for would say. Uh, and it's great. I also love that once they crack the geode open, there's a magna doodle and it is the magna doodle that he pulled out of the trash that Al was trying to throw away. There's a magna doodle sitting next to it. And on the magna doodle are all of these like crazy demonic symbols, <laughs> right? So adorable. It's just, it's, it's perfect because it's plausible, right? Well, in movies, it's plausible. It's not actually plausible, but you know, they don't really know that what it is. They don't understand the context, but they go downstairs and the party has gone from being a dancing, like fun singing party to let's tell spooky stories party, um, which sure. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so Glenn and Terry have snuck downstairs cause they don't want to be alone and they, they want some food and, and, they get involved, but the spooky stuff begins to happen. And so at the party, um, what do they do? They try and like one of the guys says you can levitate people. If you, yeah, they, this is a, it's a standard party thing that this, you know, young people really do this, um, where you, you do the, the levitation game, but theirs is a little modified. They're trying to lift them much higher. Usually the game mm -hmm. is a bunch of people sitting in a circle and they put, you know, two fingers underneath the person's body and then, chant and then lift them up i've done it a bunch of times of course yes you get more yeah. than three girls in a bedroom alone they're all going to try to do this that's like sure that's slumber party 101 <laughs> yes you listen to <laughs> to uh rick astley and you, you we crimp our hair and we <laughs> levitate and so they're trying it with this this jock dude and it's not working so they say hey get glenn in here because he's little and Glenn actually ends up levitating. Yeah. Right. So whatever forces have been awoken by them cracking open the geode and, and just the hole in the ground um, are, are in action. And, and nobody really freaks out about Glenn levitating and being able to touch the ceiling. Um, it's uh, it's kind of weird. I mean, again, it's it's kids, so they're going to make it you know, whatever. Um, but so there weird things are beginning to happen. And so it's at this point, and, and again, you know, this is kind of screenwriting 101, but at 10 minutes, we knew exactly the story. We're at 20 minutes now we're leading into the second act. So we need to know that there is a threat, that something is wrong. Um, and so, you know, Glenn levitating is, is that signal that things have started to change, but I love Glenn's reaction, right? In most movies, when that kid hits the ground, he's going to like, be like, screw you, Todd, or whatever, and, and run away. And this one, he cries. Yeah. Because he's 12. Yeah. And this is, this is. That like was scary. Nightmare <laughs> that scared him. And it's again, Dorf handles it very well. It's very real crying, which is difficult to pull off at that age. And, and, it, you know, it, it felt very natural to me. It yeah. felt very realistic that this would be his actual reaction as a kid. Instead of the movie reaction, which would be to, you know, throw a tantrum or, you know, or that everybody would be some guy equally in the nuts. freaked out or, or there would just be something. 
Well, a lot of movies are not willing to have a kid be humiliated like that and feel humiliated. Right. Like, he, I don't know. It feels like we don't always want to go there. Yeah, I mean, he's the main character. He's the one that's supposed to be protected from those kinds of feelings. But he becomes more endearing because we see him vulnerable yeah. in that way. Um, and then, of course, you know, the the party ends, you know, I also like that the party ends without any sort of major happenings, right? No parents come, no police. You know, again, there's no adults in this movie. And and it just sort of it concludes as most teenage parties do, right? Most of them, the cops don't get called. You know, Seth Rogen does not break down a door. Yeah. Um, a guy doesn't flash his balls to, you know, a neighbor and get the cops called or something like it's it's just it's we were here and then we went home. And that's exactly what happens. And so we we get kind of their bedtime routine. We get to see Al change into just the loveliest long john <laughs> pajamas. Again, so 80s, but reminding you that she's still like a kid, right? Yeah, she, these are not growing. these are not John Hughes teenagers. That's an important distinction to right. make. These are yes. real like kids who who are actually teenaged. <laughs> Um, yes. John Hughes movies are wonderful, iconic. I love them so much, but those are twenty-five-year-old people. <laughs> yes, That's, the, as we talked about with uh, last week, you know, it's it's the twenty-five-year-olds, yeah, who and are and that's teenagers. and that's kind of important for for a lot of movies. If there's going to be any kind of sex appeal, you definitely want to make sure mm -hmm. that you're not confusing those two things, because man. That would be super weird if, like, all of these teenagers that were having this party in this house looked like they were 25, and then mm. they have this 12-year-old kid trying to interact with them. That would be so weird. But they all just look right. like kids in the end. Yes. They're, they're all actual, like, appropriate kids. I'm sure not all of them were. I'm sure a few of them were probably in their early 20s. Um, but, but still, it's that they're not the focal point. They're not yeah. the, the problem. So... In this particular case, Glenn wakes up and he's kind of realizing that the the flies have not died yet. They're still flapping around in this jar. There's some outside. And then we kind of see everybody go to bed. And then Terry gets up to go to the bathroom. Um, he's staying over. And he gets up to go to the bathroom and sees the dog by the bathroom. And then his mother appears from downstairs. This was this really a freaky. This is a good scene. It's it's not scary necessarily, but you know it's wrong. And that's what makes it work. But Terry is so... And we don't know a ton about Terry at, at this point beyond his family situation. But the way that, you know, that young actor, Lewis Tripp, plays it, he's just... He runs to her. He's embracing her. They're spinning. There's all this, like, you know, sort of washed out white light or blue light, just kind of like filling the scene. It was sad. And it's, it's sad, right? It's really gut-wrenching. And then it, it cuts to an over-the-shoulder shot, and we realize that he's holding the dog, and the dog is dead. <laughs> and in praise of this movie, and in praise of any movie that does this, it looks like a fake dog. Please do not yeah. show me corpses that look like real dogs. Um, that's terrible. 
And I would have hated that if I had to see like a 12 year old boy holding a dog that looked like it was actually dead. So it doesn't look real. That was, I needed that. But I mean, as soon as I saw the dog in the movie, it's like, well, this was made in the 80s. So that dog is going to die soon. Definitely. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, I mean, again, this is already throwing quite a bit at the, the kids in this movie to process emotionally. Um, but you know, things go on. They wake up the next morning. Terry goes home. We we do get a brief glimpse of Terry's home life, which is definitely not good. His dad is just gone on business, and and he's got to fend for himself with like you know, a couple day old pizza and a sink full of dishes again. So again, this is this is the latchkey kid's nightmare. Like this is the movie that is the ultimate like fear of where are my parents where have my parents gone <laughs> it's 10 o'clock do you know where your parents are i told you yesterday no <laughs> so the next section of the film is really about sort of dividing all of our characters up um terry goes home he's rocking out you can see that his dad is basically bought terry anything that he wanted <laughs> He's got a drum kit. He's got some massive guitars and amps that he obviously doesn't know how to play. And, and he's just sort of rocking air guitar and listening to heavy metal in his room. Glenn's, you know, staying at the house. His sister's going out for um, a party with her friends. Her friends are like pressuring her to go to a lake or something. I, I, whatever. It doesn't matter. But in essence, Glenn's like... <laughs> I kind of love it because he's like, bitch, you can't leave me. Our dog just died. He's <laughs> like, what the fuck is wrong with you? And she's like, but it's a party at the beach. I, I really liked that he did not want to be alone. I think that movies get that wrong. Um, that that kids just enjoy having an empty house. Um, and I like that he objects to it. That he's like, no, don't leave. Please don't leave me alone. That would be terrible. Yeah. yeah, he's like, something really scary happened. You guys all saw it. And he, at this point, he's referring just to the levitation. Mm -hmm. He's like, dude, like, this is weird. And his, and I love that his request is simple. Can you please just call mom and dad? Just call them. We know where they are. We have their number. Call them. And they're all like, Ugh, you dumb kid. I mean, there's that one girl with like crazy bangs who just rolls her <laughs> eyes. It looks like she's rolling her eyes so hard that they're going to fly out of her head. And, it, and you know, you just kind of you you feel for Glenn in this moment that he's being overruled, even though he is obviously correct. Um, and then we get one of the things that probably have kept this movie from really researching back because as he leaves the room, he calls the guy. What is he's call him a fag? I think that's what it is. And it's like, oh, God. The 80s. Oh, yeah. Jesus. And that's, it's unfortunate, but it's also, it's a time capsule. Right. If this was on Disney Plus, they'd put that disclaimer up. There are representations and words in this, you know, like the thing to say, like, we're sorry. Um, and yeah, it sucks. I, I kind of wish, because I feel like this movie would be a lot more accessible to modern viewers without some of those unfortunate 80s-isms, right? Uh, Monster Squad has a lot of the same issues. I don't know how it evades them, um, I, I guess, by being a little bit more of that cynical 
you, you give it more rope with stuff like that because it establishes that very cynical tone right off the bat. But um, it's, you know, it, unfortunate realities of the time. Yeah. So, um, but Glenn is, is left by himself again. Uh, the boyfriend or the potential boyfriend says that he's going to take care of the dog, which does not do well as we might expect because he's kind of he's kind of a terrible person um but then we see that glenn was planning to give his sister a new launch like a way to launch their rockets um and unfortunately since she's now sort of walked away from all of that he just kind of tosses it away and and this again becomes important later it's nice setup and payoff this is a very sort of nicely developed script and script in that way um there's not really anything in it that comes across as unearned everything is set up very carefully by the screenplay and quickly at that um so as glenn is left alone more strange happenings occur uh, again there's a lot with the bug light that he just kind of doesn't get uh, all of the flies that just don't seem to be willing to die or moths or whatever um, but then Terry comes back over and and sort of shares with him what he's discovered because Terry is a metalhead and one of his records and I am struggling to remember the name of the band. Do you remember the name of the band? I don't. He, he one of the bands he listens to. And, and again, this is a very 80s thing. It has this massive, you know, gatefold cover and it has this thing in it called the Dark Book. Like that was an insert in the album. And Terry realized that the symbols that they saw on the magnitude (laughs) were actually in this dark book. And so here's where all the satanic panic elements come in. Uh, Again, there were legitimate fears in the 1980s that these heavy metal records, which often drew upon religious imagery and, uh, you know, satanic imagery, you know, whatever you want to call it that these bands were trying to infect the minds of children. But what Terry finds refreshingly is the opposite, that they were trying to make people aware of these old gods and then provide them with ostensibly everything that they would need to banish that evil. And so the, the spell that they're talking about here is, is, contained on the record and it's this for me may be the cleverest inversion of the entire film because it 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 sends something that was a very legitimate concern that people were legitimately talking about at this time period and just mocks it relentlessly but turns it into a positive right it could have just made fun of it i guess but it it actually makes it the thing that saves them if Terry didn't have this heavy metal record with this information in it, they would be screwed. And that is glorious. Yeah. Well, and like, it's, it's really good. You know, it's, it's, uh, I don't know. It feels like slight vindication. Cause you know, there's a huge crossover between people who enjoy that kind of heavy metal and watch a lot of horror movies. So I, I kind of like that it, it was almost a shout out to some of the people who might have been watching this that, you know, your music isn't evil. It may actually <laughs> save you. 
That's right. It's it's let me stand with you in solidarity. If you play that record backward, it might actually give you the spell to close one of these demon gates. Yeah. And and that is is wonderful. And that sort of kicks off our second act as the boys try to figure out not only sort of how they're going to fix this problem, which it does seem to be a problem. But, you know, how are they going to potentially survive this? And I also kind of like that they. I mean, it's fairly typical to do a, a horror movie tease of like, oh, we've solved it, we fixed it, and and then we didn't. But this one, they they kind of play that up a couple of times that oh, everything's fine now, and it's it's just not. And I I kind of love how they go through it. Because the hole in the ground, they don't just, they can't just fill it. So they cover it with like a trapdoor. And the moment after they do the spell and they're like trying to banish it, you know, like the door is being forced open and the latch is being screwed around with. Um, oh, the band, I, I'm looking at, hold up a screenshot. The band was Sacrifix, <laughs> <laughs> which is great. <laughs> Sacrifix. Um, but so as they're in the backyard trying to, to do these spells, Al comes back and she feels very bad about ditching Glenn, which again, I mean, this movie has like this sweet little core to it and it really comes down to these characters, you know, sort of reconnecting, like figuring out that they, they do care about each other. And even though things are changing, it's not that bad. So from that point on, Al is like game. Right. She's hanging out with them. They're playing cards in the basement. They shoot off this rocket together. <laughs> Terry gets a couple of great lines. I, they're, when they're downstairs in the basement, he's like, the, the doorbells ring. The doorbell rings. And D Terry's like, demons wouldn't ring the doorbell. <laughs> like, it's just I'm telling a, you, Terry is fantastic. He's so good. Yeah. Terry, I, Terry is the unsung hero of this film. Now, I will say he's the lead of the, of the second gate film, which makes a ton of sense. And that film, again, is not very good, but it, it was a sort of additional chance for um, for Terry to, to sort of shine a little bit. But he is so good in this movie as the nerdy sidekick, which is, a, again, a fairly standard you know, sort of horror movie trope. He's kind of perfect in this and, and the, the perfect foil for Glenn, who is mostly played straight. Um, the uh, main thing that he discovers, uh, they've, they've got to get the rocket back. Um, so he finds, I guess it's the Thunderbolt, it's this massive rocket that he was planning to shoot with his sister. Um, they find that when the Lee sisters come over to do their hair and you know, then Al sort of ditches them again. But you can tell she's not as into it. That's right. They've got their facial masks on. <laughs> We get a, a couple of, you know, standard 80s, you know, up yours kind of scenes, you know, that kind of stuff. Um, but yeah, the, the second act for this is where things slow down a little bit. We get a little bit more with the characters, um, just sort of establishing the stuff that we're going to need for the third act. Right. So the Rockets, um, Alan Glenn's relationship, Terry's relationship with uh, his family and with Glenn, all of that stuff kind of gets built up and, and it's all pretty good. Um, but the second act becomes about <sighs> kidnapping, I guess. I mean, like at that point, the demons need sacrifices. That's kind of what Terry 
reveals that they need a sacrifice in order to come back and open the gate fully or something. So there's like, you know, they do the monster under the bed thing, which is great. Yes. Um, it's, it's executed. Well, the, the hands that they use are really good. Very goopy, you know, just kind of, kind of gross. This is a very goopy movie. In a it lot is. Of ways, which, which I appreciate so for films. being, you know, geared toward a younger audience. They really don't hold, hold back. Yeah, no, no. And when things escalate, they escalate and they stay escalated. Um, The quiet moments in this film are all front loaded and ultimately are built to to lead to a pretty fantastic run of, of really scary moments. And one of the biggest ones is when the parents come home. And this I remember being pretty, pretty terrified by as a kid. I, I thought that this was pretty bad because they they run from the monster under the bed. They go out the front door and the parents are there exactly as they left. But they approach and and they start trying to choke Glenn to death. Yeah. So like the dad grabs him around the neck, starts trying to kill him. It's immediately scary. I mean, you know, something's wrong when they show up. Sure. But it's it's just it's a terrifying prospect. Right. It's a terrifying thing to consider that your parent might want to kill you. But then he he kind of like grabs at his face and then like just milk pours out of it like the android from Alien. Right? So just like all of this white goo. It's, a, it's a, again, it's a great effect yeah. and very, very chilling. So now all of the kids are, are truly freaked out. The Lee sisters were still staying over, so they're freaked out. Al goes outside to look around and we're introduced for the first time to the little mini demons. I, I don't, I'm sure they're called something in the film, but you know, basically there are these tiny little demon things that are going to be our sort of like gremlin for the rest of this movie. And it's a combination of miniatures, uh, puppets and actors in suits. I think they only had two, maybe three of the suits to actually put on actors. So you, whenever you see that few of them together, they're doing a forced perspective shot, um, which this movie is great because the forced perspective shots are a little bit off. Um, there's one right as Al goes outside to the backyard and we're introduced to the demons where you can really see she's like standing on a uh, like stone patio, like a brick patio. And you can tell what they did was they, you know, did a forced perspective shot. Uh, I should we explain what forced perspective is? Is that a would that be a thing? I guess you, so. Listeners, if you don't know what forced perspective is, you should <laughs> go to Google and type that in. Forced type perspective, in forced perspective movies. Right. Um, the basic idea is that the camera is a two-dimensional plane. So you can trick the eye into seeing things as being in the same perspective by basically putting things closer to the camera and farther away from the camera. Uh, this is an ancient Hollywood trick to, to sort of, uh, I, I remember watching a sci-fi, uh, a breakdown of the special effects from one of the original versions of uh, Gulliver's Travels. And they had this scene where all of the little, you know, Lilliputians are marching around Gulliver and they did it all with mirrors and forced perspective, right? Just placing the camera in certain spots building mirrors into the set so that they could reflect people who were standing, you know, 60 feet away. So they looked really small and then just 
doing all of that at the same time. And that's basically what's happening here. And there's this one great shot of Al standing on this patio and you can basically see the line that they cut out in forced perspective for her to stand on very close to the camera. And then, you know, the actors in the suits, you know, were actually a good, you know, 20, 30 feet away. Um, but they look like miniatures. They're very clever with it though, because they run a hose through the scene. So like she's standing on a hose and the hose that she's standing on is, is like an actual sized hose, but the way they lined it up, they had like a massive hose that the actors in the suits were standing next to, but they got the perspective so perfect. You can't, you can't really tell. And that's what makes the scene work, even though there's some other stuff that sort of give away what they're doing. So uh, as I mentioned, this this film was the, the visual effects director is one of the guys who went on to do these kinds of effects for Lord of the Rings. And I legitimately think Peter Jackson watched this scene, this one right here, and was like, I need to talk to that guy. <laughs> I need to know how he did this and how this was done. Not that the technique was new, but I want to see how this guy made this work and look this good because they do it several times in the film and it always looks pretty damn good. Um, so really cool stuff happening in the second act, but in essence, we get, we have to get Glenn alone. They try to call the parents, the phone burns, right? So we actually get to see a Bakelite phone, like the Bakelite phone just melt, which is great. And then they, don't they burn Terry's record? Yeah. Isn't that what happens? Yes. Like his, his, his reference material for how to banish them. They, they burn that. And uh, so then they decide that, Oh, we'll, we'll use the Bible. <laughs> <laughs> and, and Terry just says, these guys are older than the Bible. <laughs> like it's, it's so great, man. I, I don't know. I love it. I think so much of this works and you know, they're, they're kind of doing an HP Lovecraft thing a little bit. Like these are the old gods. And, you know, they're, they're kind of doing that, but, but really let's, let's kind of move to the third act of the film because the main thrust of the rest of the movie is them trying to figure out a way to close the gate, right? Like very simple, straightforward. How can we close it? Well, we were going to use the record that didn't work. Uh, we we're going to use the Bible that didn't work. Uh, there is a really good scene where Terry falls into the gate. Um, and is down there and, and there's some more forced perspective stuff happening with the, the little creatures and he's got to climb his way back and out. And he's in genuine danger. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like it was and actually actor, kind of scary. It totally. And the actor really sells it. Um, I don't know. This is one of those, those eighties movies that the stakes feel very real and the circumstances feel very real. That's one of the things that I think makes something like the Goonies work is that you feel like these are circumstances that could happen. Are they extreme? Of course, right? Are you going to stumble upon a family of murderers and be forced to run for your lives? No, but even though it's this extreme thing, the entry point to it is so little bit wish fulfillment, but also so believable that you kind of go with it. And this is the same. Could a hole open up in my backyard that could potentially be a demonic portal? Eh, maybe. I don't know. I hope so. It's possible. <laughs> think of the fun. Think of the fun we could have. And it is a little bit of that, right? Like, it's a little bit of that, oh, man, like, we could save the world. It's the same reason that as a kid you enjoyed watching Home Alone. 
because you thought, well, if this sure. ever happened, this is how I would handle it. This is what I would do. <laughs> Even yeah, though, you know, that's that's objectively not true. Um, you <laughs> would just be kidnapped or murdered like everyone else. Um, exactly. But but that's sort of the, the fantasy of the film is like, well, if my house was sieged by demons, I would totally fight them. Absolutely. And and of course, Terry's final blow as he makes it out of the gate is to just hurl the Bible into it. I love that. He just throws the whole thing. I mean, he's a heavy metal fan. He knows that's what you do. You start right. throwing you Bibles throw the Bible at, at it. And uh, so they believe they've closed the gate and everything is fine. But the moment they get back inside, that is certainly not true. Uh, or at least they don't feel like it is. Uh, then they actually have a really good conversation. Like I, again, I like movies that address the circumstances at hand. So they're like, Oh dude, all this stuff is messed up. We're going to be in so much trouble. Right. You know, they've immediately moved on to the realities of what has happened to them. And like, I guess Glenn's window is smashed. So they're like, Oh, what are we going to say? And they're like, Oh, we threw a Frisbee through it. All right. There's nothing we could do. Um, so it's, it's nice. It's sweet. It's sort of a good moment for, uh, the characters to sort of chill for a second before things get really bad again. And that's exactly what happens. So the third act of the gate kicks into high gear after they believe they've shut the gate, uh, really for the second time of the film. So, it, you know, it teases us a little bit. And the third act of this film, I think, is is really good. It's strong, but it's also a bit cluttered. It feels like they're trying to either extend the time or continue to sort of hammer on this idea that maybe all of this is sort of coming from Glenn's imagination, or at least the, maybe the demons are taking inspiration from Glenn's imagination. Uh, and so I'm, I'm really talking about the introduction of uh, zombies. Because <laughs> um, up until this point, this is a pretty straightforward, like supernatural versus the demons kind of thing. Um, there's, you know, the stuff where it plays on his family, his parents appearing, then they're, you know, messed up. Or there's a couple of nice quick pans over family photos. That's a little messed up, which I don't know if, if you got this out of it, but rewatching it now with some of the context that I have. Because when I saw this when I was a kid, you know, I wasn't reading a lot of horror or anything like that. But this also feels a bit of a piece or, or, or inspired loosely by some things from it. Right? It seems like maybe the screenwriter, you know, took some pieces. <laughs> uh, I don't know. What do you think about that? Um, I think if not, maybe inspired by something that specific, that feels like how we approached stories about young people. Like it kind of encapsulates every single storytelling mechanic that we had about young people. <laughs> oh, very true. Yeah. It's, it's very much Stephen King's kitchen sink of, of youth storytelling. All of his stories kind of culminate in that one, but I and, think and anything spin out of it in some ways, I think anything made in the eighties that, that even reeks of horror a little bit is going to owe something to Stephen King. Probably. Sure. I think the pictures were the ones that really dug in, like trying to generate horror out of a, you know, family photo covered in blood or something like that. You know, yeah. there's some very specific moments in it that sort of prey upon that particular fear. 
of the the sort of destruction, the breakdown of your family via you know this force, which as we've already discussed is kind of one of the major themes of this film to begin with. But what we find in the third act is that Glenn loses his support, right? Like I, I talked earlier about the film sort of maintaining a kind of upbeat tone or a hopeful tone. And a lot of that comes from the core three, right? They all kind of support each other in really great ways. And so either though, even though they've been facing, you know, some pretty terrifying things in the, the earlier parts of the film, because they're all together and kind of working together, generally the, there's not that sense of threat, right? You know, it's the difference between all of the teenagers gathered in the living room and scream and the girl who goes to the garage for beer, right? It's that, that sort of difference. And basically this last act is about stripping Glenn of everyone around him, or at least the two people that are around him. Um, so this zombie appears, which is rooted in a story that Terry told earlier in the film about a construction worker dying in Glenn's house or one of the houses. And so this zombie appears out of the wall, bursts through it, and collects Terry and pulls him away, and then the wall seals behind, and, and Glenn is, is basically left alone. Um, Al also disappears. What happens to her? Does she get... She gets pulled in there, too. Um, yeah, yeah. They both thing. just kind of get captured. They both just get captured. and so, But assumed dead. I mean, the movie really does play it like they're gone. I don't, right, like, you don't really get the feeling that he's trying to rescue them so much as he's just trying to make the demons stop. Yes. Yeah. At this point, he's the rescue sort of angle is over. Like he just thinks they're gone, Um, which, you know, I mentioned earlier that, you know, a kid's horror film that sort of moves to despair, I think, is 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 a dangerous one to watch with a young kid. And so this one is like right on that edge. It's teetering on that edge for a few minutes as Glenn attempts to, you know, try to figure out what his next steps might be. And. You know, the cool thing is, is that it really does come down to love, right? Like yeah. that's, that's the thing that dispels the demons, right? It's not the heavy metal band. It's not the Bible. It's love. Um, so one of the things this, how this movie does really well is the, the establishment and then the working around of the, the house and the structure of the house. Like all of that works super well. And the house and how it changes over the course of the film. You know, now at this point, we're going to start seeing like the ancient runes written on it. Um, you know, the bedroom, of course, has become messier and the windows have been blown out. Um, you know, everything gets upended, right? Everything gets sort of turned on its head. And I think that that's a, a really effective technique because you, you feel kind of safe in this house for a good chunk of it. Right. The yeah. house feels like a safe place to be. Well, at, at one point in the movie, away. you know, they're they're really fighting against the whole outside the portal and all of the demons. And they're they are always kind of going back to this safe house. Yeah. Right. Yeah. The house is where they go to be safe. Um, so the, the zombie, you're, you're right, does come after Al bursts out of her like. Closet mirror or something. And then we get another scene with the little mini demons because he falls down, collapses after she throws a stereo at his head, which, again, effective technique. Um, those 80s boxes were, were massive. Uh, but 
And then it turns into all the little demons. So you kind of get the idea that these demons are preying upon the fears that, that they know, right? Showing them the things that they already be afraid of, but it's really just all the demons. And I kind of like that because I, I feel like without that confirmation at this point, I would have started to been shifting into, is this all a dream mode? I, I, I feel like I would have done that. Um, and so I'm, I'm kind of back on the side that it's just the demons kind of screwing with them. Uh, but then we get a couple of the really terrifying scenes in this, like, is it, it does ratchet up pretty substantially. At least I feel it does even today watching it. It's like, Oh, this is getting pretty intense. Um, and uh, one of them is the closet scene uh, where uh, Terry attempts to to eat Glenn's hand. Yeah. And uh, this is pretty rough. It's the real actor. They've made up his face and, and he is, you know, doing a pretty decent job of attacking his friend. Um, and uh, again, I, I just love she stabs him. Uh, Al comes down to help and stabs him with a Barbie doll leg. That was great. And man, that's good. They they even do a special effects shot of it. They show the Barbie doll leg sticking out of his eye, or at least the aftermath, I guess. Um, and I, I just adore the idea of children's toys being used as killing weapons. Yeah. Um, I wrote a story in college, uh, a story that I've, I've thought about going back to revise because it's, I, I see the, I'm, when I read it, I see all of my influences. And one of them that must have been there was this, and I just didn't realize it. But I, at the end, I wrote a sequence where uh, one of the characters stabs another character in the eye uh, with uh, Lincoln Logs. Right? <laughs> and that was the killing weapon, was a Lincoln Log. And so I, I think, you know, maybe the gate was in my mind somewhere back there where I, I made that decision. I'm not sure. But I, I think that it's just a fascinating thing to consider something basically designed for enjoyment and for fun to, to be used so, so horrifyingly. I guess it's the same principle of, uh, you know, the ear cutting scene in uh, Reservoir Dogs. You know, you play this super happy pop song while a guy's getting his ear cut off. You know, it's a nice ironic twist. Yeah, it's it's a way to play on your audience's expectations and sort of push, you know, push a a feeling at them that they can't necessarily deal with. And, and, uh, you know, it it happens here and it's it's good. It's a good moment. Um, But of course, Al is is taken and and Glenn kind of pieces together what's happening based on what Terry told him from the. The dark book that the the gate needs two human sacrifices in order to you know truly open and call forth the old gods, which is is what's coming next. Um, but that's where he gets the idea of shortly after that it's um it's the rocket that can save them because he built that rocket for her out of love, and he wants to to use that to to sort of shut them everything down. But now the house that again has felt like a very safe space begins to be torn apart. A greater hole opens up underneath the foyer, which there's a little bit of rough compositing as they're they're working that in. But whatever, it's the 80s; it's no big deal. And and we get introduced finally to the the old god itself. And uh, I don't know what did you think of of this effect? I, I thought it was okay, but uh, I'm curious to, to get your read on it. 
I kind of secretly like the the cheesy old looking models that they used <laughs> for stuff like sure. this. I don't know. I it's it's charming. Um, it is dated. You know the whole sequence with that creature just that has a lot of the rougher effects, especially. Um, but it is brief. I mean, again, we're talking about a movie that just wastes no time. It, it also, I feel like movies back then were hyper aware that their special effects didn't look good. And so they didn't really want to spend an inordinate amount of time, you know, having the camera settle on the one thing that doesn't look so great. <laughs> right. It's, they're aware, acutely aware of probably how much an audience can tolerate this. Yeah. And, and they're okay with that as opposed to modern special effects blockbusters where they've spent so much money. They want you to look at it for as long as possible. Yeah. And, and you know, if you can pull it off, great. But I think generally speaking, those shorter nuggets, they, they don't give as much time for the mind to read the problems, right? Those, those quick hits, they, they work better. However, I do um, think, I do think that the end of the battle after he shoots the rocket is really, really cool. With yeah. The fireworks and sure. the yeah. sky effects. I thought that was a, a nice, you know, kind of balance to the really cheesy effect to then have that little light show at the end. That was really cute. <laughs> it's it is nice. Um, so the, the final demon emerges surrounded by the little ones and, and they've obviously, there's a nice unification of their design. Um, the big monster looks kind of like a big version of the little (laughs) ones we've been seeing run around, um, slightly more terrifying perhaps, but I guess it has a sort of Lovecraftian bent to it. It's kind of got multiple arms, but feels a bit Godzilla-ish. So even still, maybe it's the demons playing on them, playing on Glenn's fears by showing him something that he is already, you know, somewhat familiar with. Um, but this interaction, the first interaction with the the old god is very strange. Glenn's kind of pulled toward it by the wind, and then the, the thing just sort of contemplates him. Yeah. Pats him <laughs> on the head. Right, it's very strange. Um, he's he doesn't want Glenn to get away, and and so then Glenn kind of just breaks down. He he cries. Right, he's like, oh, you know, again, a very natural, very realistic reaction. Grabs him, holds him up, and then they have this like moment of contact. That I was, I, I remember even as a kid, I was I never expected it, but it's almost like affectionate. Like thank you, or thank something you for freeing me. Right? Yeah. Maybe it's that. Maybe it's it's the demon going like you're not a threat. So appreciate all the efforts, you know. <laughs> and uh, but this has the effect of taking the spot, I guess, where Terry bit him, and he. Well, not necessarily, but he, he gets the eyeball in the hand, which again is the scene is the the image from this film that has stuck with me for all these years, because man, that effect looks very good. Yeah. Um, well, in that it is very bad, right? It's like terrifying. Yeah. <laughs> but the eyes in the hand, it, it the effect was very good. It was obvious. 
if it was puppeted, it's brilliantly puppeted, but it almost even feels like they put a sort of hand prosthetic over somebody's eye and then filmed it, which, you know, could have been the effect. I, I really haven't researched it, but it's good. Um, but at this point, Glenn is low, right? I, I kind of love how dark this movie goes because he goes to his window, the broken window that's already messed up and shooting out of the gate, you know, the, the hole in his backyard is evil right just a, a pillar of evil being spewed into the world um and and that's where glenn kind of makes his his decision of what he's going to do which is is pretty cool and it's it all feels you know pretty natural like he just kind of says no i'm i'm not going to stop i'm not going to give up it's really he, quick like yeah, it's, and it's he just like, so quick and he just demands that they take him instead that's the thing um you know, not my friends, not my sister. You've got to take me. And so he realizes that with all this wind and stuff, he's not going to be able to launch the rocket. Traditionally, he's not going to be able to light the fuse. So he remembers that he bought his sister the, you know, electronic ignition kit. And so he gets that out again. It's, this is very like eighties kids movie thing that the mm -hmm. kids kind of problem solving his way through the problem uh, figuring out a way to, you know, defeat the evil monster or whatever. And it's super effective. Like I have very little qualm with, with this section of the film. Well, it's all um, sort of set up for you. I mean, none of mm -hmm. this is out of the blue. None of this is surprising. You know, it makes sense that all of this occurred to him in this space, which I didn't right. really like. Yeah. Based on his expertise, based on what he knows, based on the stuff that we've already been shown, that he has in his possession, the rocket, the, uh, the, the ignition kit, and the beyond flashlight it, that he's been using the whole time, which is where he gets the batteries from. Just being like, a, a, we saw all of these things, you know, in, in the film, it's directly related to the emotional core because it all has to do with, you know, the things about his sister that she has rejected about herself and is trying to shun and, you know, the things that, that prove to him that you know they're they are really close and that they do have this loving relationship. You know, it's it's not just I have rockets in my room. It's it's <laughs> right. a little bit deeper than that. Yeah, it's it's um you know when he when he fires it off, he even says "Happy birthday, Al!" Right. Yeah. And at this point, he he thinks or believes that Al is dead. Basically, yeah. like you know she's gone, and uh, oh he he does stab the eye out which yeah. <laughs> uh, ooh, uh, that's not good. Um, but, you know, like we see Glenn who at the beginning is presented as a, as a pretty scared kid, right? Like he's, he's a kid that, that has legitimate fears. He doesn't want to be alone. He doesn't want to be left behind. He does not want to be levitated. No, he's not a fan <laughs> of the levitation at all. And he gets tossed around a fair bit here at the end too. <laughs> But, but yeah, like it's, it's very much a, his, his emotional journey through this is one where he has to, to also kind of be okay with that. He has to feel okay with being by himself and taking this on alone. And he grows through that. Like you get a real sense that Glenn is, is actually growing and changing, you know, by these experiences. So he is able to ignite the rocket. He wishes his sister a happy birthday and then gets manhandled by the demon and basically <laughs> flung out of the house. And again, those special effects, a little dodgy, not great, but yeah. you know, 
But again, this is so fast. This is like a few minutes. Oh, yeah. Seconds in some cases. Like these shots are very, very carefully staged and shot in order to just get us through it. Um, But uh, as you mentioned, the rocket explodes. The demon is killed. There's a you know nice beam of light into the sky. There's fireworks and everything clears off and it's it's sunrise. Right. And, uh, you know, the, the sunrise set or scene is is a, a blue screen. He's standing on a blue screen and they've just kind of got the scene in the background, which is kind of weak. But then he approaches the house and, you know, we're back to you know normal, normal daytime shooting. But as he goes back into the house, you know, there's this huge hole in the floor and he's still he's one, but he's still alone. But that's where the movie sort of, you know, twisted at the end and and basically everybody or everything in the film that we thought had been lost is brought back. Right. Everything is kind of undone, including the dog. Right. Even yeah. Angus is all right. Um, Al is back. Terry's back. And, and they're able to sort of. And they're they're able to sort of, you know, deal with what they've just been through uh, the house. I love, though, that it stays legitimately trashed. Like it doesn't yeah. go back to being okay. Like their house is toast because of this. And, and I kind of like that because I, one of the things I think this movie really does well is it's kind of a not so subtle takedown of this kind of suburban existence. Yeah. All right. The loneliness of it, the, the detachment of it, right. That you're not really necessarily connected to the world around you. You're just kind of in your own little space. And, and this movie kind of breaks that space down and it, the family unit is, is sort of revived at the end. That's, that's good. But you know, the house itself, because, because it does have like a, a sort of artificial quality to it. Right. You, you mentioned earlier the, yeah. you know, this is, this is a nice house. This is a nice neighborhood. And all of that gets kind of dispensed with because ultimately it's not what really matters. And and it seems like our characters at the very least have learned, well, these are the things that really matter. So the film makes a, a hard turn at the end to something, you know, more positive. But, of course, it's an 80s horror movie, which means that we've got at least to have a little bit of a possibility that there might be something. And so in the backyard, the dog finds uh, one of Terry's shoes that he lost. A really nice Nike, so you know, gotta have that back. Um, but there is a new tree growing in the spot, right? That might eventually fall over one day and reopen the gate. Um, but uh, but yeah, I mean, it's it's a, a nice little rosy ending to a film that, quite frankly, has no right being as good as it ends up being. Yeah, and it's so it's so tightly focused. <laughs> Yes. Again, there's there's an element to modern movie making, at least on the large scale. Right? There's plenty of independent and and low budget filmmakers who are still operating under these you know these sets of circumstances. But this is one of the better examples of films from the 1980s that there is literally no cruft in this at all. There is nothing wasted. Every, as you mentioned, every scene has a narrative purpose. Every shot that we're shown applies to something that's going to affect something later. It's, it's a really, really carefully designed film. It, I guess in that way, you could argue that it feels a bit workmanlike, 
right? There's not a lot of, you know, there's no grandeur here, right? Nobody's like going out to get that great B-roll footage, right? You know, this isn't a Roger Deakins joint. This is, this is a work for hire. I have a script. I'm going to shoot the script. But that purity, it, it's, it's just so rare now, right? Yeah. Um, I, I recently got uh, Total Recall on 4K. And while that movie does have some bloat in it, it absolutely does. You forget how stripped down Verhoeven's storytelling really is. Like he is moving, man. That's why those action movies that he produced in the eighties are so good. I mean, like RoboCop, RoboCop flies once that movie gets started. It is, it is so very perfect in its structure and design. Um, you know, the, the only places where it moves to excess are the places where Verhoeven wants to show the excess, that he's right. trying to make a point with the excess. Does that scene of Murphy getting his hand blown off need to be there? No, but he needs you to understand something in that scene. So, I mean, even in that, the excessive parts are necessary. But so, you know, Verhoeven and, and that, that style of that 80s, even blockbuster filmmaking still is more akin to this, right? Where we're, we're going to toss out anything and everything that we don't need, not only for budget, but because it's not going to help the story. Whereas it seems like the modern sort of approach, at least for, I would say for the last decade, for sure, is to just jam as much stuff in there as you possibly can in the hopes, you know, maybe we'll hit with something, right? Maybe this will be the thing that people engage with. And with horror, I think, for my tastes, and I, that's really all I can speak to, stripped down horror is always going to be better. I, right? Because the moment you start introducing complexity into horror, you start thinking about it. And the moment you start thinking about it, you're going to find things that are wrong. Yeah, if you think about a horror movie, it's not scary anymore. Because it's 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 playing just off of emotions and you can't i mean i would i would argue that that it's smarter to not be smarter if that makes sense yeah i mean it's horror is a very carefully designed dodge right they're trying to produce you know these emotions in you these sort of deep instinctual feelings but they have to do it in a way that bypasses the sort of logic side of your brain which is yeah. why I think you see, you know, all these conjuring movies and stuff. They're always just trying to jump scare you because that's the easiest way to bypass logic. It doesn't require as much suspension of disbelief. Right. But when you've got stuff like Insidious where again, they do plenty of that stuff too, but there's a, an overwhelming sense of horror that comes out of those because of, you know, some of the stuff they're doing in the background. You know, it's the difference between Invisible Man and Malignant. Right? <laughs> It's two very different things. And and this movie, I, I think its strength is in its simplicity, right? Small cast, great location, really good acting from some some child actors that could have just boffed it and didn't. Um, it's it's a kind of perfect storm of things that shouldn't have worked and wound up working. And as a result, I, I think this is one that I, I know it has the reassessment of this movie has been kind of ongoing. This is one, I think red letter media did a video on it three or four years ago, maybe. Um, 
where they did a review and talked about this one and like how it was pretty solid. But I mean, I, I don't think this is a movie that gets talked about enough for what it does, because there's a lot of trash horror from the 1980s that deserves to be forgotten. Like if you, if people love it and you love that stuff, by all means continue. But this is one that if, even if you're not like into horror, like where you're like, Oh man, I'm all about this. This has stuff. some universal appeal. Yeah. Like I think you could get a lot out of this movie. The act, the, you know, the solid, the solidity of the acting, the, the swiftness of the story, the, again, as long as you're willing to go with it, the sort of believability of the story that this, you know, sort of hyper extensive situation could happen is also good. Right. Um, I, I also like that. And I guess one thing this movie curates very well is that it never feels like the threats are insurmountable by the people who are fighting against it. That's yeah. to me is huge. A lot of movies, horror movies specifically, especially ones that have supernatural elements. I'm like, well, how are you actually going to defeat this thing? Like, because in, in making the threat so substantial, which most filmmakers love taking time to do, all you really do is convince me that the people who I'm meant to believe are going to end this can't, can't. And, it, and so then when they do, I'm like, nah, no, nah, it couldn't have been that way. You know, it's, it's like all of the histrionics that the Freddy or the Friday, the 13th movies go through in the later ones to try and convince you that these, you know, disaffected teenagers are going to be able to kill this rampaging murder machine. It's like, no, you're not. There's no way you're going to be able to pull that off. I'm glad you've got a plan. I'm glad you're going to, you know, drop him in a vat of acid or whatever the fuck, but you're not going to be able to pull it off. But this one, it feels like the stakes are so carefully balanced that this silly little rocket that represents the love that he has for his sister is definitely going to be able to do it because these demons are destroyed by those positive feelings. Yeah, and they, and they the, leave the enough of the supernatural threat sort of undefined so that you can easily embrace that, yes, love could defeat this. Right. Yeah, it doesn't become that impossibility. And that's that's a difficult thing to, to sort of manage and make sure that you hold on to. But in this particular case, that's what this film needs, right? So that scale is really, really important. And, and they pull it off very, very well. Um, so the film wraps up. Our, our heroes are safe. The demons are put back into the old place once again, or at least we're led to believe they are. And uh, world, you know, the world sort of resumes as in any good you know, horror movie ending. Uh, but what we get out of it is a pretty solid 80s horror film that probably not a lot of people have seen. But that should be seen, in my opinion. Uh, so let's uh, kind of wrap up our thoughts on the gate. Anything else that you wanted to bring to light as we close out the discussion? Um, I'm really sad that the actor who played Terry didn't make more movies. <laughs> it's it's weird, isn't it? I mean, normally, normally when a kid actor does such a good job, I mean, he's he's definitely overshadowed a bit by. Stephen Dorff's performance in this, you know, Dorff is the, the Henry Thomas and, and Lewis Tripp is the, you know, the nerdy kid on the bike that gets, you know, falls over at the end. But I, I just have such a heart for a sidekick. <laughs> Especially a good one because they're rare, right? Okay. They don't, they don't happen that often. And, uh, 
yeah, he seemed like he he might have been poised to to do some cool things, but it just does not. His career didn't go that direction. Um, like I said, he did come back for the Gate Two, which I have seen, but it's been a very long time, and I I don't remember loving it very much. It was it was pretty weak. Um, even though most of the the same creative team came back. Um, but in that one, Terry was almost the uh, he was almost the villain in that one, like because he tries to reopen the gate in that one. Um, the only other thing of note about that one that I remember is that uh, Pamela Adlon was in it, um, voice of Bobby Hill, um, you know, longtime comedian. Uh, she was in it as well as one of the sidekick characters and, and kind of like Terry was in the first one, she was excellent, way better than, you know, most of the other people in the movie. Um, so, I mean, I, I, yeah, I, I don't know. He's, he just did a couple of things and then it seems like he sort of just does the convention circuit these days, um, which, you know, is fine. That's, that's certainly a way to get by, but, but yeah, given his, the quality of his performance, you would have hoped that his, his career would have gone a little bit further, but it, it kind yeah. of didn't. Um, I mean, but you know, the dwarf, <laughs> he's gone all the way. You got to be Deacon Frost. You can't get much higher Man, than that. He was Deacon Frost. I mean, my God. Um, but yeah, so I, I, I agree. I, I think that is, is certainly one thing seeing his performance in this. And, and again, just the way that this film sort of reclaims the nerdy metalhead and, yeah. and, and says that's okay. And, and it's actually kind of good is, is really great. And certainly not something that you would have seen in movies in the late eighties. Cause it was easy to dunk on the metal kids. Um, and many, many movies did right from Friday the 13th and, and Freddie all the way down, you know, there was, there were always the metal kids that were getting murdered. And so it was nice to see one who, you know, came out on the other side. Okay. Uh, I do love the way that they curate his his denim vest. It does change throughout the film. Like he's either got different vests or he is pinning different shirts to it every day, which I thought was just a nice touch. Because if you were one of those metal kids, that's exactly what you were going to do. You're going to make sure that that day reflected your particular tastes. You know, um, so I thought that was pretty solid. And and I don't want to forget about uh, Krista Denton as Al, who also did not really have much of a career after this. Uh, she had a little bit of a recurring part on growing pains for a little bit mm-hmm. and, and then a couple of TV things and then out and, and she, you know, hasn't really ever acted since, but I think as Al, she does a great job. I mean, she's, she has to walk a fine line of being that annoying sort of mildly bratty older sister who's treating the main character bad, but also being redeemable and kind of lovable in the same way. And ultimately I think, you know, all three of these kids work out really well. Obviously, you know, the dwarf goes on to his future success, but um, really the three of them anchor this whole film and, and sort of make it a much more watchable experience. Um, You know, depending on who you cast in those three parts, this film could have been and probably should have been a disaster. Um, but it's not, it's not at all. In fact, I think, um, you know, looking back over 
you know, all of the kind of eighties movies that I remember watching a lot as a kid. Um, and I did watch this a lot, all of the eighties movies that I remember watching a lot as a kid, this actually kind of stands out as one of my favorites. Mm-hmm. I, I think I'm actually, I actually really liked revisiting this and, and, and I found it just incredibly watchable. Right. And, and that is not something I can say about a lot of the movies I watched in the 1980s. Uh, many of them have not held up well to say the <laughs> least. Although um, after realizing this film had a Ruskies connection, I think I'm going to have to dig that one up somewhere and give that a shot. <laughs> Who knows if I'm gonna have to see. I, it, there's no way in hell that movie's going <laughs> to hold up. There's going to be so many bad Russian jokes. I, I can just, I can hear it in my head. I can't remember the film, the, the shoulder popping scene very clear in my mind. Maybe because I, I was, uh, I was always like, Hmm, if I ever dislocate my shoulder, that's what I'll do. Uh, because <laughs> kids I was really bad ideas. Yeah. yeah. Don't go to the doctor. Just use a dictionary much better. But it, I think it's just one of those, those movies that, I mean, it does have a couple of problematic lines as we discussed, but for the most part, this, this hangs with a lot of those really good, like eighties kid movies for me. Right. It's, it's, you know, it's not Goonies, but it also, you know, wasn't trying to be that. Um, it's definitely right up there with Monster Squad for me. I, I think it's, you know, Monster Squad is again. It's it's more cynical. It's it's a little bit more goofy. It, it's a different set of goals than this. This one is a legitimate horror film. Like it's trying to scare you, uh, and a couple of those scenes definitely that pulls off. But um, but yeah, it's kind of up there with those for me. And I, I wasn't expecting that once I did once we talked about doing it for the show and I decided to revisit it. I, I didn't think that it would that it would have come out of my rose colored glasses looking as good as it actually still does. And that's, that's kind of cool. That doesn't happen very often. All right. Uh, So I guess after our breakdown, we'll make final recommendations. Uh, So where do you fall on the gate? This is great. Um, There's so much eighties nostalgia happening all the time. Uh, mm, particularly yeah, late 80s nostalgia, we're sort of at the tail end of that, you know, the early 80s sort of fascinated everybody for a while. Um, but this is this is a great thing to revisit, especially, you know, well, we've brought it up a couple of times already, Stranger Things. You know, if you like that kind yeah. of thing, if you like to see cute kids in danger. <laughs> cute doing, kids in peril. <laughs> yeah, like if you like to see them doing stuff and, and having adventures that are a little bit horror themed absolutely watch this um again if you like blade watch this because yeah just for the historical dorf record like it just it's still blowing me away like wow that really is the same guy isn't it um you know i know we were all little kids once but but very few of us get to have our our little kidness encapsulated on film like that precisely um but yeah, I, I really enjoyed this. I mean, I don't I didn't remember it quite as well as you did. Um, but I definitely I mean, I would recommend this to other adults who have no no touchstone for what it might be like. I think it's really cute. Yeah, like I said, given I think you're dead on there with the 80s nostalgia that we're kind of embedded in now and all of the projects that are trying to emulate this time period to do their horror project or their sci-fi project or their spooky, whatever project. 
Um, just watch this because this doesn't have to emulate anything. And it does all of the things that those projects are trying to do uh, pretty well, right? Uh, remarkably well. Um, and again, you get to see the work of a visual effects director that would go on to do some substantial work on the greatest film series you know, kind of ever. Uh, definitely in terms of you know large-scale special effects productions, and that's uh, Lord of the Rings. So um, an exciting little movie. I was really uh, glad that it held up better than I expected it to. And uh, so, yeah, uh, a heavy recommendation for me on the gate. I think this is a great little film. The fact that it's streaming for free on YouTube should make it absolutely no barriers of entry. Like as long as you've got 85 minutes of time to devote, um, you can, you can enjoy and come to love the gate uh, as much as we have. All right. So any final thoughts? I, I love Terry. <laughs> Terry forever. <laughs> Put more nerdy metalheads in your movies, you guys. Do, Do it. it. Just make it happen. Um, all right. Well, I guess we will uh, bring this episode to a close. Thanks for listening, as always. Uh, if somebody would like to find you on the internet to tell you just how much they think Stephen Dorff is so adorable in the gate, uh, where could they do that? Um, you can find my Stephen Dorff Stan account on Twitter <laughs> at Baskinator. <laughs> Uh, you can find me at at I love Stephen Dorf. No, I'm just um, but maybe I will start that one. I wonder if I can. No, I'm just kidding. Um, no, you can find me at T Baskin, uh, where we can have a, a lovely discussion about the gate. If you would so choose, uh, you can always get us at F Peace Theater on Twitter as well. And you can email us at failurepiece at gmail.com if you have any questions. Um, but thanks again for listening. We certainly appreciate you taking some time and letting us worm our way into your ears with our thoughts on old bad movies that maybe aren't so bad. So we will see you next time.